Hey gang, welcome to episode 95 of the No Persinium podcast, your guide to everything immersive. I'm your host, Noah Nelson, coming to you from Los Angeles. Um, you're not ready for this episode. I'm just going to tell you that right now. You, you just, you think you're ready? You're not. You don't know what's coming down the tracks. Because we have the host of the Voices of VR podcast, Mr. Kent Bai, is here to talk to us. And he has interviewed so many people in the VR world, hundreds, like 700 interviews. He's put out over 500 of them already. That's, and that's just in the past few years. And this man, he's got what he calls the elemental theory of presence, and it is completely pertinent to everything we talk about. So excited about this episode for you guys. I don't say that lightly. You can hear it in my voice. I can't wait for you to hear this, but we have a lot of work to get through first because it's, you know, there are no longer, are there just these weeks where things are happening? No, things are always happening. So let's get down to business right now. All right. First up, new Patreon backers, because that's what pays for everything we're doing. I want to thank Ava Anderson, Michael Anderson, no relation. I I don't think, I mean, they live in different cities, so pretty sure no relation. Uh, if you know what that's from, email me, noah at nopersinium.com. Uh, David Rizika, uh, whose name hopefully I didn't butcher, but if I butcher your name, hey, it's a mark of honor because it, it means that I care or something. I'm Noah Noha Nelson, after all. Uh, and of course, Leone upped their pledge. Huge thanks there for upping your pledge. We are at 60 backers on the Patreon, patreon.com slash nopersinium. And we're on a march to have 100 so we can show off. See, look, there's 100 people who are crazy enough. I mean, uh, cool enough to give money to this thing. And don't you know that we care? Because uh, it's demonstrating that you care. Just a dollar a month. More helps, too. More on that in a moment uh, because we may hit some milestones and I may owe you guys things. Everything immersive. I owe you everything immersive because you've built everything immersive that's the new facebook group we started just like two weekends two weeks ago we've we've almost got 500 members as i'm recording this and who knows where we'll be by the time you're listening like a zillion Uh, that's not mathematically possible I mean, if you, if you buy a bunch of bots, I suppose, but people would catch on real quick. Um, this, this has 6 billion users. There's only a billion people on Facebook. That doesn't make any sense. Anyway, uh, this is a, a fantastic conversational zone for you to join. What was that? That's not grammatical. It's Everything Immersive on Facebook or everythingimmersive.com leads you to the Facebook. Oh, so you don't have to remember anything either. You should join up. LA, San Francisco, New York are all humming and hopping. We got people coming in from New Zealand and England and all around, kind of sniffing about, hopefully joining in the fun. And uh, we talk about, what do we talk about? We talk about everything immersive. Oh, how easy is that? Newsletters. Jessica did her first solo run on the San Francisco this week. And it is amazing. Like, honestly, I was just floored by what she put together, knocked it out of the park, so excited there, makes me want to up up my game, LA and New York are hitting inboxes this week, so let's see if Zay and I still have the magic touch, 
We've got some new essays coming up and features also on deck over at the Medium Collection. Uh, should be hitting this weekend, Monday, thereabout. It's been a busy week at work. You know how it goes. This is not my full-time job, even though everyone probably thinks it is. It's not. Uh, our friend Martin Jimenez is coming through with an essay about uh, headphone audio and immersive kind of riffing on the encounter and some other stuff because he he works he's an audio guy and he's been working on this and he's got some good thoughts on that a nice overview not super technical you don't have to worry about that if you're not super technical just a good introduction to it all right here's some more news before we even get to the shows that's how crazy this is uh I need you to hold a date if you're in Los Angeles or going to be near Los Angeles on June 1st in LA our friend Matt Quinn at Theater Asylum, and we, no proscenium, are hosting a little get-together for the immersive community at The Fringe. Details coming up very soon. Mark June 1st on your calendar. Fringe will start the next week. This is kind of a kickoff party for the immersive community at Fringe. There are a lot of people who are trying to jump into the pool, and we want to have everyone be able to say hi to each other. June 1st, The Fringe keep that in mind. The Patreon goal, that uh, $200 goal, we passed it, blew it out of the water. Uh, I mean, 16 bucks above 200, I consider is blowing it out of the water. Um, so now I need to come up with two things. One, I'm going to look at the dates and in May, we are going to have that first video thing for all of the Patreon backers. So then you get to look at my crazy hair and, and we're going to have some people on and, and talk and it's going to be fun, little, little office hours on the video for as long as we feel like doing it. And then uh, I got to come up with a new goal. And so I came up with a new goal. And the new goal is going to be for a gear upgrade. And we're going to put the number at, uh, I'm going to call it 450. I was going to go 400, but you know what? I'm being weird. So $450 is our new goal. That's going to get us some upgraded gear. Um, keep your eye out as well. I might, I might pull a shenanigan. There might be a, another way for us to get gear. Just just keep in mind, I'm, I'm boiling something right now because there's some very specific gear that I want to do, do some very specific things with. And, uh, you know, if you guys want it, well, the whole show exists because the newsletter folks came in and started and jumped in on the Patreon. And that's how we go. Uh, and that's how this happens. So new goal, 450 patreon.com slash no proscenium. That's as close as we get to an ad these days. Let's jump into the news for this April 21st, 2017. Um, shows we're tracking. I'm changing format up a bit. Um, New York City here. Kelly Barknick's Episodic has announced official opening of episode one in May. You can find the dates for that swimming around in everything immersive uh, group. Uh, it'll also be in the New York newsletter. I am certain there's also an event called the majestic. It's a free event in lower Manhattan. Learned about it at everything immersive. That's popping up this month and next all about an enchanted forest hidden at the edges of New York city. Uh, and uh, it looks, there's like some tasteful nudity apparently. And there's, I don't know why that came to mind, but like, like the image, the Eventbrite looks kind of interesting. That should be popping up in the New York newsletter. I'm handing that over to Zay. Los Angeles, here's what I think I mentioned at the very, very end of the episode. The other side, uh, Sophia Stoller's uh, dance theater piece. I caught an early rehearsal of this before the sort of interactive layer has been brought in. Jamie Peterson, early, early, early friend of the show, 
uh, had a wonderful piece years ago uh, the, the involving Remy the Talking Lantern. Uh, you can go back way into the archives and find Jamie and I in like like, like first or third episode, somewhere in there. Uh, Jamie's coming in to do that part of it. The dance was spectacular, spectacular piece, piece of dance theater in an immersive staging, and they're adding interactivity. I can't wait to catch the full version. The rehearsal was fantastic. Look for that in the LA newsletter. The Willows has gone on sale. Also caught a rehearsal of that. That's uh, Creep, Creep LA's uh, intended to be ongoing piece. And they got a good shot at it because from what I hear, the initial wave of tickets has sold out. So $125 tickets. So we're, we're looking at you know, uh, New York prices, but uh, it's delivering on the ratio of performers to audience members, a beautiful home that you get to you know, wander around and, and meet this very strange, demented family from the mind of Justin Fix and his collaborators. Um, it's one. It's, it's one. You're going to want to take the time, squirrel, squirrel away the money, go check it out. Amos is a new piece that's coming to bootleg, an immersive thriller an immersive thriller that takes place in the EDM scene of the Ukraine. Ava, the co-writer, writes to us about uh, when she told me about the piece. She says, thanks, Noah. Your newsletter continues to ruin my social life. Well, that's what I'm here for, ruining social lives. You should see mine. It's non-existent. Not entirely true. I am a very eligible bachelor. <laughs> I can't even get through that sentence. I'm a madman who spends all his nights writing about this stuff. We're talking about this stuff. We're seeing this stuff. Oh, I pity the person who has to put up with me. San Francisco, The Encounter. The Encounter, which we love so much, is up there. Check the San Francisco newsletter for a 20% off code. That's right, 20%. Who gets you deals like that? Nobody gets you 20% off. That one in the newsletter. Nobody does that. One person did. Jessica. Jessica did that for you. I told you she was doing an amazing job. She's going to be running this place before we know it. Maybe I can retire if I do. Maybe I'll follow Albert up to Portland. And while I'm in Oregon, if I get up there by April 27th, I can check out the Overlook Film Festival, which is taking place over that weekend. It is the horror film festival du jour. Um, du jour means of the day, but I'm trying to imply that it's like, a, you know what I'm trying to do. Blackout's going to be there. Annie Lester's going to be there. They've got their signature weekend long horror immersive experience. Man, if only I could retire and go up to the Overlook, that'd be nice. Good thing Brian Bishop's going to be up there. Maybe I'll have to ask him about it. Um, speaking of Brian Bishop, he was at Star Wars Celebration last week. And I would have been jealous, except he was like texting me while he was there. And he was super excited because of Star Wars Land. The news out of Star Wars Land. They are have plans to go full tilt immersive. Check out Brian's piece at The Verge. And then I wrote some notes about it, kind of following up at our medium collection. A little one-two punch there. Um, I'm not going to wax poetic right now because you know I'm going to be excited about it. This is one of the stories we've been following this week. Um, another big story we've been following this week, all the news out of Fate, F8, the big Facebook developers conference. They're going hard on VR and AR, and that means immersive design is going to be integral to the biggest companies in the world. Um, volumetric cameras, I mean, just the technical stuff, it sounds you, know, you start going, oh, what's a volumetric camera? Look, 
what I'm talking about here is a simple, you know, it's like a beach ball size camera that lets you not just turn your head left and right and up and down in VR, but it lets you go back and forth, you know, back and to the left, back and to the left. You're able to bob your head around and start to get a sense of presence more of a sense of presence in virtual reality and the more presence you have the more you need to bring in other design aesthetics and ideas speaking of aesthetics and ideas there is a really great installation in los angeles this weekend at automata it's called the woods look for that uh in i'll put it up on the show notes um it's just going to be through Saturday. So if you're hearing this after Saturday, the 22nd, you're probably not going to get a chance to see this um, great piece made by a CalArts soon to be graduate uh, who is working on larger form stuff. Uh, I'm really excited about where this designer could be going and what kind of things we're going to be seeing. Um, it just keeps getting better and better all the time. Um, but let's go back to presence for a second here. Um, because this episode is all about presence. It's all about being present. Um, I have been kind of tagging back in and out with the Voices of VR podcast for a little while now, because uh, Kent produces just an amazing amount of material uh, talking to all of like, just all of the people. I almost maybe mean literally all of the people who make VR in this country. Kent and beyond, Kent has talked to them. He, his his process is amazing. His he, he's just consistent beyond all belief. I I wish I could be working at the level that he's working at. It is it is inspiring and daunting all at the same time. But that's not why I'm here. I am not here to praise Kent by, but I am here to learn from him, as I did in episode 502 of his podcast, where he was talking with Jessica Brillhart, who is the principal filmmaker for virtual reality at Google. I was driving the five listening to his podcast because that's what I do when I drive the five. I listen to podcasts, a whole bunch of them at once. And Kent brought up this idea of the elemental theory of presence. I'm not going to spoil it right now, but you're going to want to check these out. Check out episode 502, that talk with Jessica Brillhart. And you can also check out his talk uh, at uh, Silicon Valley Virtual Reality SVVR. That was episode 521 of his podcast, where he gets into some of the classical roots of that, both of which make fantastic companions for this episode, episode 95 of the No Presidium podcast. We're getting close to 100, gang. More on that next week. And this is... This, this is Kent's show. We're about to experience it's Kent's show. As far as I'm concerned, this is a masterclass on presence. It is a jump starter kit. If you're an immersive theater person and you want to understand the magic that's going into the VR world and how these two things cross over, we've probably never done it better than this. So I'll see you on the other side. Yeah, this the levels look good. I think we've started. Okay, Kent, <laughs> thank you for thank you for joining me in, in this Airbnb here in, in in a part of Los Angeles I don't usually go to, not far from the convention center. Um, you're in town for VRLA. That's right. So, Oops. oh, that's okay. Uh, it happens. Um, so, should I introduce myself? Yeah, why don't you introduce yourself? Okay, that sounds good. Yeah, so, uh, there'll be a soft open, but go for it. Yeah, my yeah. name is Kent Bai, and I do the Voices of VR podcast. So, since May of 2014, I've gone to over 
30 different VR conferences and have conducted over 700 interviews with VR pioneers. Really, And like 500 plus of them are out. Yeah, too. I've published yeah. like 526 of them so far. Yeah. So I carry a backlog of about 200 episodes right now. <laughs> oh um, and I publish three to five a week. Right now I'm doing about three a week because yeah. I'm also writing a book about the ultimate potential of VR. Uh, but at SVVR, it was really an opportunity for me uh, to give a keynote and really do some higher level synthesis and both give some historical context for VR, but also start to dig into this elemental theory of presence that I've been cultivating uh, and talking about within the VR community. Well, let's let's crack into that because this elemental theory that you laid out, like I just, I kind of went electric, which is not one of the elements, uh, <laughs> went electric when you you brought this up. So I wonder if you could like break down, you know, touching on each of the four elements and, sure. and what they represent. Yeah, so... Uh, you know, in virtual reality, you know, if you look at theories of presence, you get into the level of embodiment. And so a lot of embodiment is about being in the earth element. So it's everything to do your sensory experience, your body. And it's something that's completely unique to VR because we're able to put our body into the experience. And it's also, you know, unique to live to immersive theater as well. You are actually putting your body into the experience. And so that's what immersive theater and VR share is you're putting your body into the narrative in a new way. Yeah. So, it's distinct from what a regular video game or even a, a regular theater or, or film are. Like your, your body is present, but it's not, it's not integral to what's going on. Right. So let me just sort of start where I started from the VR community because it starts in the VR. It starts with the body, but it also starts with... Mel Slater giving his theory of presence and he said that there's two illusions for presence he says there's the place illusion and then there's the plausibility illusion mm. the place illusion is the tricking your mind into feeling like you're in another place and that's all the things that the VR technology is doing is tricking your senses and all the things that make you feel transported to another world so that's a place illusion. The plausibility illusion is, does everything make sense? Is it coherent? Do you believe that this is actually happening? Yeah. And so from Mel Slater's perspective, uh, that's mostly to do with your body. And so I had the direct experience of going to these other conferences and having like a sense of social presence where I was connecting to other people or I had a, a high expression of my agency within the experience and that was giving a high level of presence or there's a very great narrative and it was giving me a sense of emotional presence. And so I started to kind of take a step back and see how these were kind of corresponding to the four elements where the earth element is the body and that's all about your embodied presence and haptics and all the things that are ad addressing your sensory experience. Um, and then something like a video game is very much of fire and air. So the fire is your expression of your agency, your your will, you, your need to explore through a, a scene. And that expression of your agency comes through interacting with the world and actually participating with the world. And that's the difference between like a game and a film is that you can actually express your agency in that experience and it's somehow responding to you and, and either through characters or the environment. Um, so then if we move to air, the air element's a lot about social and mental presence. It's about uh, communication, words, thoughts, abstractions. It's anything that has to do with language, which is communication, which 
both stimulates your mind uh, as you're doing puzzles, let's say, but it's also connecting to other people in a social dimension. So there's kind of the dual element of social and mental presence are kind of unique in their own rights, but they're kind of both in the air element and yeah. they, they, they come out. It's kind of mimetic, new spheric kind of <clears throat> vibe. It's like it's there's there's information passing back and right. forth and it's it can be linguistic, but it can also be be really kind of like you know, paralinguistic, if you will. I think I just <laughs> popped that out of nowhere. But I but I get I get what you, there's there's information being transmitted and it's not through touch it's yeah. not it's not through just the eyes alone there's there's a calculation happening yeah and it's stimulating your mind in a way that you know video game developers may talk about mental friction in a way that they want to make it feel like you're actually engaged and challenged in some way and it, it sort of engages your mind within the experience and then the, the final element is the water element and that's really about emotional presence and so that could be anything from a narrative that's engaging your emotions that could be music that's really tapping into the emotional realm um, facial expressions within film uh, as well as in VR are going to start to bring in an emotional component um, things, you, that make, things that make feel like your mirror neurons fire off right. that's the big thing right? yeah, yeah. And, and empathy is a big thing as well so you're, you're receiving um, so you know, a lot of the film, um, I'd say, has a center of gravity where you're really passively receiving a narrative and a story. And it's really about emotional engagement because you don't really have the ability to express your agency or make any choices and change the objective reality of a film. You're just passively receiving it. So it's, it's, you have the stimulation of your mind and you have the ability to project your own subjective reality into you know seeing omens and symbols within the film that's going to connect to your personal life and so there's a subjectivity that's happening but it's all happening inside of you mm. and the thing that's different with virtual reality is that you can actually not make it just you know subjective but you're actually objectively making choices and decisions where those decisions and choices are changing the objective reality right so to me, the the unique thing about virtual reality is that you know you have you have games which is mostly about uh, agency and making choices. So mostly air and fire, uh, the yang elements, uh, which is more of expression of of energy outward, and then the yin elements of the of water and earth. The water is mostly film, so it's passive, and the body is also very receptive. It's like we're taking in all these sensory experiences, and there's a certain dimension of our unconscious processes that are in, interpreting all these signals that are coming in through our body, and we have a full depth of experience that goes way beyond reading something in the newspaper that yeah. is a level of, of abstraction, and you have this whole full range of direct experience through the body, which VR is really bringing in. So I, I see that VR is starting to kind of pull in all of these different elements, and you can kind of think about these this elemental theory, both in terms of presence, but also from the perspective of experiential design as you're designing and creating an immersive experience whether it's in live theater or in VR you can start to look at okay what's the narrative component well how are we engaging the emotions or how are we creating an ambiance uh, that creates a feeling of welcomeness and openness yeah. so setting the context or you know how do we engage the body how do we exp allow someone to express agency in a way that you're able to balance the narrative but also give people control to make decisions that are both 
meaningful or if they're not meaningful that feels like they're able to control their own personal experience right so there's like a local and global agency there of making decisions that are either they're kind of like in a sleep no more fashion where everything's on rails and you're kind of exploring around the warehouse you're expressing your local agency but none of your decisions are impacting the outcome of the plot of the story so there's no global agency or impact of your decisions within that context um, and then, you know, the social mental component is something that is also unique to VR because you're able to start to, to do a level of collaborative storytelling where it's going to be a little bit like a Dungeons and Dragons could be a collaborative storytelling type of experience where you're actually co-creating a narrative with other people. And that's where I think it's going to kind of start to blend into a lot of these immersive yeah theater, live interactions, co-construction of the, the story uh, through the participation of other people. So. I, I'm, always, I'm always feeling that the, the thing that's, that's exciting about the, the tech is that it becomes sort of almost like an invisible tech in that it, it starts to, it, it helps, it kind of gets out of the way. Like v, the thing about the embodied part of VR, about you know, surrounding everyone in, in the, that world when you, you put the headset on and hopefully, and other things that you put in, is that it it stops being about oh I'm watching something over there mm-hmm. and it's all around and yet you're exactly right like it just starts to fall it starts to be more like being physically present somewhere it starts to be more like oh like oh I can see the person we're talking we're sharing a moment together in that sharing the moment we're able to start creating things together and you find yourself it's weird to like take this sort of journey of well we could just get around a table and do and play D&D or we could just go larping or we could you know buy a mansion and run around the mansion and play maniac mansion for for live action the the VR the technology the headsets all the all the other stuff it's I see it as like a pathway to democratization of those experiences and, and to this eliminate space. It's a teleportation device as much as it is anything else. And they can bring two people very far away together and let them create in a space together. And that's the part that always gets me like, wow. Yeah, to me, I think that <laughs> because... I don't use words. <laughs> <laughs> I just use sounds. <laughs> well, I think you're right in, in the sense that uh, VR is democratizing experience in a way. Yeah. That if you think about um, when you go to see a film, do you necessarily say that's an experience? I mean, it can be sometimes, but you typically think of experiences where you're actually participating in the construction of your meaning in some way. Yeah. You're able to make choices and be able to express your agency in, in a way that is a part of creating that experience. Yeah. And I think that... There's like, there's like a deep level in film where you are, right? Like I always say that, you know, the final edit doesn't lay with the director or the studio. It lays with the person in the audience watching the movie. It's what they, they notice and assemble in their head. Yeah. But even then, there is a text of a film and you can argue and point out like, no, you... you objectively got that wrong point here not so in vr if you're surrounded by stuff and and what you're noticing is different from what someone else is noticing the same way on the street we may be looking in two different directions and have completely different experiences of a given intersection right and i think that if we look to say the education field for Mm. to look at the difference between a lecture and the process of being able to do an interactive exercise You know, there's a a pedagogy, which is just sort of a philosophy of how you actually teach somebody what are the steps that you're actually uh, doing in order to teach. And you you can have a didactic pedagogy where you're basically just telling someone what the truth is. And there's a constructivist pedagogy, which is the 
the kind of idea that you're actually participating in the construction of the meaning by interacting. And if you think of a kind of a pyramid, at the top of the pyramid is like the air element. It's like the level of abstraction where you're just being told what the reality is. And at the bottom is the earth element where it's like the direct experience of actually uh, taking it in your body, mm. interacting with it and participating with it. Mm. And that's what both VR and immersive theater are doing is that it's allowing you to not just have somebody tell you what it is, which is in some sense what a film does. I mean, there's a lot of dimensions of it's really activating and doing a lot of really sophisticated visual communication and you are participating in a in a way. But, you know, just uh, in, the, in the process of someone telling you something, um, it's a lot different to be told something through a lecture or to read something in a newspaper article and then have a direct experience of it. And I think the that's the thread that I think is tying both the immersive theater and, and VR together is that direct experience, which is so much more rich. And the thing that I kind of think about it is that there's so many different dimensions that happen within our mind that is constructing our reality that is happening at a completely unconscious level. And so if you can use the body to activate all those different dimensions of our unconscious processing, that's what makes you VR and live immersive theater unique is that you're engaging the body in a way that you're engaging in that unconscious process, which I think I would argue gives you a much richer direct experience than something you're passively receiving. So you've talked with so many people working in VR and designing in VR. How, how are they tackling the, the issue of designing for experience and for like, like what's, what's, do you see, are they coming in all from different directions? Or are you seeing sort of a, a move in a certain way, a kind of a, a tend towards a certain center of gravity in order to start to activate those unconscious processes? Yeah, and I think that there's a, a number of different vectors for how people are coming in into VR. And the two major ones are either they're coming from the gaming world or they're coming from the film world. So if you look at the gaming world, they're very much focused on high agency and lots of choices. And so their challenge is how do you bring in the body and how do you bring in like an emotional narrative that is really engaging? And so actually, I think the gamers are, are kind of in some ways almost having the most sophisticated, holistic way of um, it's easier for them to work with game engines and all of that pipeline and to be able to do immersive 3D graphics and to be able to add in story on top of their whole production pipeline. The filmmakers are kind of coming from the more narrative and script and plot perspective and their challenge is that they have to adapt a whole new pipeline of, of how they produce content and it's sort of fragmented into the 360 videos which is kind of using the tools they know and understand but then it's sort of like you're starting to see a lot of these film shops get into the game engines and interactive content which they have to kind of have a little bit more of a learning curve up into that and so I kind of see that um, part of the reason you know I wanted to give this speech at SVVR is that you almost have in the VR community the people who are purists in the way that they don't think that 360 video should be classified as VR. <laughs> and I would say, well, you know, there's, there's a, a part where that can trigger moments of, uh, you know, aspects of your embodied cognition. You know, you can still have a sense of embodiment where you turn your head around is a lot better than just looking at a 2D screen. It's immersive. It's actually still tricking a lot of those dimensions of your body. And it's not volumetric and it's not as good as being able to walk around a room and have that full six degree of freedom immersion that you get from like, quote unquote, real and true VR, which is usually computer generated. Right. So 
I, I see this sort of bias against, you know, the the passive 360 medium. And that's part of the reason why I was like, okay, well, that's emotional presence. You know, there's they're doing things with, if you look at the VR experiences that are kind of like the, the most paradigmatic examples of the of VR as empathy machine, they're the ones that are, you know, going to Syrian refugee camps, oh, the yeah. 360 videos. And so- Use of force, not Nainda's use of force was the first one that kind of like left me shell-shocked. Uh, and there it's like the game engine. You, I'm sure you, the, the listeners probably haven't, but it's the game engine. You're walking around. You're seeing a, a game engine recreation of, of an incident at the, the San Diego border. And they're, they're beating a man. And you hear people's voices, the real voices recorded on people's cell phones of stop hitting him, stop hitting him. And it's just it's shocking, even though it's rendered in, you know, what looks like you know, Grand Theft Auto 3 engine. But... And you have no real agency other than the ability to move around, but the emotional impact is huge because the audio part is real. Yeah, yeah, and you, you, you know, it's this Nani de la Pena. She takes field recordings from different live events and kind of recreates them into a, a, a kind of an immersive, interactive, uh, CGI-generated scenes. And I think that you're right. A lot of the power of these these experiences come from the audio because it's real audio and you know it's real but you're it's transporting you into this recreation where it gives you the sense of embodiment and it triggers your mirror neurons in a new way and so you know just to kind of go back to these two different trajectories is that you have the film world that's been really dialed into cultivating emotional presence for a long long time a lot of sophisticated you know techniques and practices for doing that and that Storytelling within gaming, I think, is kind of coming from, you know, really integrating high agency where you're kind of doing environmental storytelling or you're doing it through non-player characters. Um, And I think the challenge with uh, all of the different dimensions is that uh, none of these systems can really take on... Uh, full expression of you able to have a conversation right and that's where artificial intelligence is going to kind of come in and be the glue where it's going to allow you to express agency in a way through conversation so the air element of the you know natural language processing having the ai be able to understand what you're saying but then for you to from a fire element perspective express your agency in a way where you're able to do new game mechanics. And one example that I would say that I had a chance to play at GDC was Starship Commander, where usually, you know, it's a basically you're you're in a spaceship and you're able to talk to a computer and give different directions. And you can fire with a, you know, abstractions, you know, whenever you use gamepad controllers, you have act, abstract, abstracted expression of your agency. So you push a button, you fire a missile. That's what... Everything in VR, a lot of wave shooters, you know, a lot of right. things you're seeing, it's very easy to push a button and to shoot something. But I think... There's the, so many guns because there's so many triggers, right? You know, like that's like, oh, this this controller has a trigger, so we must have a gun. And, and that's yeah. kind of the lowest hanging fruit that you can do in a mechanic. You, pu- you pull a trigger and you shoot something out. Yeah. But um, adding AI and the conversational interfaces, you start to introduce new game mechanics, which is essentially diplomacy. Like if you think about making a game around diplomacy, then you can start to be like, well, how do you navigate this situation through conversation and speech? And that's kind of the new gameplay that I'm starting to see within VR. And because you're immersed, it's so much more compelling than if you were to use that same mechanic on a 2d screen you just feel like you're there and it gives you that sense of plausibility that it's actually happening yeah i can remember as as somebody immerses themselves somewhere in this building uh i can remember uh playing i can't remember it was the second or third mass effect when they added in 
they added in a connect voice activation for the um, for the dialogue tree. And in in those games, unlike other role playing games, you know, you didn't select exactly what you're going to say. You selected sort of the the subtext of what you were going to say, which some gamers hated because they were like, oh, I, I don't know what I'm saying because they wanted they, they kind of like a choose your own adventure book. They wanted very clearly what their choice was. They wanted their choice to reflect the reality. As someone with an acting degree, I was ecstatic to be able to shout at my television screen and then sort of acting as if I was the id or super ego of this character and then watching the the action unfold. The way you might, you know, at a heckle screening of a film, shout, you know, don't go in there and they might not actually go in there. That was that was a nice fourth wall breaking moment for me. I remember hearing you talk about the the agency thing and that tension between the film people and the 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 game folks around the fire element and it got me thinking like this this is probably the number one reason why I want to talk to you is cuz I almost wanted like oh oh you you solved a problem for me i started to think about the so much of the emphasis in storytelling in games is around the idea of someone being the protagonist of the story, that you are the central figure, you know, sometimes you're the Christ figure, you're the chosen one. That's why we have some of those, so many of those narratives in games to the point where people have been playing games for 20 years, you start to get tired, like, oh, do I have to save the galaxy again? It's like, mm, it's, guess it's five o'clock, I suppose. That's what I'm doing. And a lot of the design thinking moving in that direction, as opposed to your role in a film, which is to watch someone else maybe play that role and be the protagonist. But what's interesting to me in, particularly in immersive theater, when you aren't necessarily the protagonist of the story, although I've, I've also know that then she fell, you know, they started with the question of what would it be like if you were the protagonist of this story? But so many immersive theater pieces, the, you're, you're there as witness you're there to, you are there to listen. You're there to be there with the characters in the moment. And suddenly I, I often say it's like, in those scenes, your job is to be the best friend of that character. And it reframes the experience of being human in an interesting way to me in that it's not always that we're the firebringer. We're not always the one stealing. Sometimes our role in society is to be the friend, to be the witness for someone else and to be reminded of how valuable it is to have your mirror neurons firing off because that's reinforcing what's going on on the other side of the screen. So leading back into this, I I worry a little bit about AI coming in with the narrative scripting and and once that's available, this sort of whole line of the kind of work Nani's doing or or some of the the films that Chris Milk's been making or some of the things that people like Nani working in in CGI are, are, are enabling in order for people to be witnesses and to feel empathy with others when suddenly it's like oh well now you've got you've got all the tools to fix things yeah yeah i just wanted to call on a number of different things that uh interviews that i've done uh so i've done two interviews with eric darnell from baobab studios and so the first interview that i did with him he said that you know he was kind of against agency because he's like when you make choices and you are that hero then you think more about your expression of the will and testing the boundaries of how you can participate rather than actually listening and receiving and participating and uh, and empathizing with that. So he's really, he sort of made the, the bold statement of saying either it's like a trade-off between 
empathy and interactivity. Mm. And, you know, if you think about it in terms of a, a conversation, you're either kind of really emotionally being present and receiving what someone's saying, uh, or you're expressing and trying to fix it, you know? So I think you can actually hold both of those. And so the, the year after that, he said, you know, actually he kind of thought about it more and he said, well, if you're really empathetic and you're taking action, sort of the combination of empathy and action is compassion. So the, oh, that's beautiful. the next uh, piece that they had at Sundance this year was Asteroids. So he was like trying to put you into a situation where you actually were the sidekick. And he actually brought up a very uh, explicit example of this, saying that he thinks of not as you as the protagonist, you know, kind of leading the story and the narrative, but you're a sidekick kind of watching it and you're there to help at certain points and times. And he pointed to the Lord of the Rings and said, you know, like at the end of Lord of the Rings, when someone was asking Tolkien why he ended with Sam going back, and you know why don't you do with the the hero of of, of Frodo? Like why did you end it with Sam? And he's like, well, Sam is like was the audience. He was the sidekick, and just like Sam was there watching. And at, at some certain points, Sam could have left, and the story would have continued. But you're watching this narrative through the eyes of that sidekick, and that as a sidekick, that's actually kind of going to be the more compelling role for you to be playing mm. within either a VR or live theater experiences because you're not the one that's driving the narrative. You're there to help. Yeah. And you're in, and you may be the difference between success or failure at different times, but, um, you're not necessarily the protagonist, which I think that if you, if you look at the scale of, of a spectrum between authored and emergent stories, authored where it's really, fixed branches and, and usually most narratives at this point are on that side of the spectrum the other side would be complete improv it'd be like a and game or it would be like an improv conversation and there was an experience i had to uh michael mateus who worked on facade with andrew stern he's at the uc santa cruz and uh, some of his students did this experience called bad news oh yeah so yeah I, we haven't talked about it on the show so go for it yeah bad news is this a deep simulation where it's got on the back end like 140 years of history of this village and you're and, and it keeps track of everybody's like where they've lived where they work and it just has the social graph of this and you're kind of thrown in the middle of this social graph where somebody has died and you have to figure out who this person is and who their next of kin is by going around and asking different people within this town. And the way that you're interfacing with this world is through an improv actor who is sitting behind a curtain and you say where you want to go and who you want to talk to and they open up the curtain and you start a conversation. And part of the whole trick with this game is that you can't tell why you're actually doing it. You yeah. can only notify the next of kin that you know this person has died. You can't tell anybody else. So you have to have a cover story. So you have to basically kind of lie about what you're doing and why asking all these prying questions and the improv actor has all these cues as to the temperament and the personality of this and who they know what information they have and so 
it's a kind of a dialogue where you're able to slowly extract different pieces of information from this world and kind of navigate around, go all over town and eventually try to find the next of kin. And it was an amazing experience where that's done by a human. And that's an example of an experience that is the, the content of it is completely emergent because it's a conversation where I'm having a conversation and they're responding to me. And it's completely plausible because we're both kind of role playing in that way. Yeah. And on top of it, like the computer, it's it, so people know it's it's not like a fixed. There's not one Mad Libsian script for this. Each time the town is completely new. So the computer yeah. generates a random town with like, it's got some variables it does. It spits out names, spits out family trees, spits out like, you know, what addresses they're living at. Yeah. And, and there's someone operating that and like feeding the actor information and the actors building it up. And yeah. it's just, it's, it, it's perfect for a festival setting. Like, I wonder if there'll ever be the home game version of it. Well, uh, yeah, that's yeah. where, that's where AI is going to come in eventually because AI is going to be that improv actor that you can have that level of emergent conversation with. See, what, what's interesting to me is I, I said to them, the, the AI should be directing it and saying like, here are the things that are important and then let it be a two player game where one person's got the computer screen and they're getting to play. So they're both acting. Oh it out. yeah. That's but, a, yeah. But yeah. So cause, cause that moment of, because there's something about, there's something about that. The, there's, there's a conspiracy that happens when two people are in and, and don't get yeah. me wrong. Like I, 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 one of my favorite books is, uh, Neil Stevenson's Diamond Age. So it's not Snow Crash that I always go back to when I think about VR or, or Neuromancer or anything. I think about Diamond Age because the lead character is an actor or one of the lead characters is an actor. And the whole idea of someone that their job was, well, they were an actor in a girl's, you know, storybook. And they kept coming back in the storybook. And, and it's been a long time since I've read it, so I can't remember all of it. But this idea that there's a, there's a place... There's a place in these virtual spaces for humans in a in a real way, and so and this, this is something I, yeah cracking farther in because you're you're working on voices of AI you're you're getting deeper deeper into the artificial intelligence you know, zone as these things are, are bringing into the VR world. Do you see do you see a, a melding a blurring or is there kind of a is there that's a weird thing to ask. Is there an existential threat to human creativity in in artificial intelligence, <laughs> well, or is this an enhancement here? So, just to give a little a little bit more context, so I've then now we you know recorded over seven hundred interviews with voices of VR, but about a year ago or so, I started to hear people in the VR community start to talk about AI more and more and more. And then it was at, at some point where I just realized like AI is going to be just absolutely huge, perhaps even bigger than VR in, in some senses, because it's just going to kind of permeate all dimensions of our society. It already has to a certain yeah, extent. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. Uh, with Google, you know, it's, it's sort of an invisible hand of AI. And so, um, but there's a lot of parallels between AI and VR. And I would say the parallels are that they're both experiential technologies. Mm. Um, VR is giving you a direct experience, but AI has to be trained by being given an experience of data. You're kind of creating a whole set of data that you're feeding into the AI. And then it's sort of trained by its own sort of more subjective, qualitative, like neural network, which is not computer code. It's more like the earth element honestly and it's more like the water element which is more of the kind of right brain qualitative dimension where it's trained with something that isn't necessarily always explainable which is kind of the 
complication of AI is they're, because they're black it's, boxes in, in yeah, some ways. Yeah, yeah. you're training it with data and it's making decisions. So there was a 17 year old who like built a, a rap bot using Kanye West lyrics, and one of the things we asked him this for the day job, we asked him, well, did you what did you learn about rap? You know, from feeding your AI all this Kanye West and getting getting it to pump out and he's like oh i didn't learn anything because it's a black box i can't see the decisions the ai is making like what right. it's finding i can look at the i can look at the outputs and i can look at the inputs and maybe infer what it's what it's figured out about it but it's it's well, opaque. well but I, what i would say to kind of modify that is that um so th- i've done a lot of i've done 90 interviews at this point about ai i haven't published how any many, of them how many interviews a day do you do in your life <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll go to a conference and I'll do like 60 interviews um, with AI and then I'll go to another one and do another 20. So I, like I went to like, period of time, so. yeah, like, like, yeah, so I, I, oh I can like, I learn on the fly and I'll go and just talk to these experts. And so um, the very first uh, VR conference I covered, um, I did like 46 interviews and and just a day and a half. Uh, and I went back to my very start. I started podcasting back in 2009 and did like 46 interviews at the very first Drupal, uh, the, the DrupalCon in 2009 is when I first started kind of doing this, going to a conference and talking to people. So I, I started doing that with VR back in 2014. And then in 2016, I went to three AI conferences and talked to about 90 different people now up to this point. And so what I'd say is that there is actually kind of an analog of the left brain, right brain. Mm. So that that right brain is a lot of the subjective perception. Uh, that is a lot of the deep learning that we're seeing and, and uh, uh, image, being able to identify images and all this thing. That, there's a lot of neural nets that are being driven by that. But yet there's a, a long history of AI, which is like constraints and planning. And it's more the left brain because you have to make a plan and, and you're kind of making a decision and then you take action in a certain way. So it's kind of a, a balancing of the left and right brain. Yeah. But yet, uh, so if you look at AlphaGo, for example, they 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 did a lot of perceptual um, techniques within AI, but there was a lot of uh, doing the more left brain stuff, which is the uh, specific techniques that allowed them to, to do more like long-term planning in a certain way. Yeah. So it's AI is kind of combining the left and right brain as well. But I think that um, in my talking to a lot of these AI experts, um, the, the sense that I get is that at, at its best, AI is going to be kind of like a creative inspiration. Mm. Um, it's going to be uh, an ability to maybe take care of some of the more low-level or, or generating inspiration to kind of work with. So a good example of that would be Sunspring, which was this Ross Goodwin uh, written, well, he, he created an AI which wrote it. But um, it's basically a 48-hour sci-fi film competition where they oh, took yeah. like a corpus of 150 sci-fi scripts. They fit into the AI, and it kind of auto-generated an entire script. Thomas Middleditch like acted. Did they actually film all of it or part of it? I think. I think. No, I they saw, filmed all of it. They filmed all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, I saw Middleditch in, in, in like a scene or a section of it. Well, yeah. it's worth watching the whole thing because it's sort of like this uh, man and machine collaboration because the machine wrote the whole script. And you, it has even stage directions that they kind of play out. They're kind of really cryptic, and they did their best job of interpreting it. <laughs> it's got this really kind of poetic, surreal quality. I mean, it's a sci-fi um, 
story. And so, oh, great, we've built we built William Burroughs. Like we've we've, we've had well, the technology to build Burroughs. <laughs> the interesting thing is that the AI was really detecting confusion. Like in a lot of a lot of the sci-fi's, there was like elements where people were just kind of confused. Oh and, my god! And through that through that dimension of confusion, they have to explain how the world works because it's like then you get the person who doesn't know what's happening and then they get to explain. So then as an audience, you learn it. So it ends up kind of having all these confusing moments. But yet the thing that makes this piece so fascinating is that so much of the story comes through the acting and the staging and how they actually are communicating these lines, which in a lot of ways are completely nonsensical. They don't make any sense at all. But they give you an accurate sense of like if this was in the future, you might actually be super confused about what they were actually saying. I think that's how Harrison Ford felt about the first Star Wars script. So <laughs> not too much difference. <laughs> yeah. So, but at the at the end, at the end of the day, their lessons were, were that you know it's not necessarily that AI is going to completely overtake everything, but it's going to be able to start to perhaps be a con- creative constraint so that they have this crazy script they have to work with but now they have to really pull out all their acting chops to really make it like human and make sense and uh, it's it's a surreal experience to watch when you watch it because it's like you know what they're saying doesn't make any sense and it's sort of funny but it's also hypnotic in a weird way because it's like it's transporting you into a completely other world right. uh, but at the end of the day, it's the humans that are able to really bring it home and actually make it coherent. When you've, I'm going to pivot here. When you've been talking with folks in the VR world, um, do, do they do they interface a lot with the immersive theater? Like here in LA, we've got some crossover in terms of fans on each side of the fence. But I'm wondering because of that that thing in terms of you we've got the the agency coming from games we've got the emotion coming from uh, the filmmakers and the embodiment is the thing that they're both headed towards half the time when i hear people talk and they'll, they'll bring up like a problem about like yeah well we can't figure out how to do this in vr yet and I've got a theater degree, and I'm like, yeah, no, we solved them like 1642. Um, so like, I don't, I don't know what you guys are talking about. This is not an actual problem here. Um, are they aware? Do they, do they cross pollinate? You have, you clearly, you know, have a, a sense of what's going on in these worlds. Yeah. Well, I think that the there's different genres of immersive theater. I think one of the the ones that is the most in parallel is like escape rooms. Right, where yeah, you, yeah. you have to actually figure out how to get out of a constrained space. And that actually translates beautifully, you know. Um, there's I think even some of the first escape rooms were inspired by some of, like, the escape game, you know. Genre. I mean, Mist is a clear inspiration for a lot of the, those things. Yeah, and, you know, I, I first saw... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, talking like, oh, those things. I'm like, yeah, no, I, I love escape games, so <laughs> I don't know why I said those things. Well, I um, I first saw Sleep No More back in 2011. That was like way before I got into VR, and I was absolutely just blown away. It was like the most immersive experience I had ever had, you know. So, even before I got into VR, I knew the depth of the power of a live immersive theater. And I, I from the very beginning, was telling people in the VR community, look, like the closest medium that we that VR storytelling can learn from is immersive theater. And so I'm starting to see different, you know, things in the technological roadmap that are kind of heading towards a convergence of VR and live theater. And one of those is the real-time live uh, 
experience from Epic Games, and they they were collaborating with a number of different uh, game developers as well. But they were essentially able to on the fly uh, have uh, someone kind of do a, a live mo capture mm. lo- motion captured performance, and then act against herself. Um, and they recorded it in kind of like oh yeah, and they that was what won SIGGRAPH last year in 2016. But you're starting to see like um, this trajectory towards being able to have somebody captured in real time and streamed over the internet in a live theater performance. And I think that that's what I'm like really waiting to see. You know, like be immersed into a virtual environment and be able to uh, actually see actors play something out live in real time now here's the challenge there's a couple of challenges one challenge is locomotion so mm-hmm. uh, moving around a space so sleep no more you're running around a warehouse 100 rooms and you're able to go anywhere and you're just able to just be fully embodied and when you do that you don't get motion sick but in vr when you do that it's sort of nauseating and yeah. so you have a number of different trade-offs of of uh, being able to be have comfortable locomotion which is teleporting but then that breaks immersion that breaks that actually sort of disrupts your place illusion because when you teleport you're kind of like completely shutting down your sense of space and then you're moving and so you can maintain that integrity of the place illusion but that can cause nausea in some people so it's difficult to construct a narrative where there's people kind of running around a space and allowing people to express their agency by moving around when moving around makes them sick. Yeah. So I think that there's going to likely perhaps be some workarounds with that. There's ways to mitigate that with, you know, either reducing the periphery, putting people in a cockpit or, you know, doing uh, locomotion where you're kind of just incrementally moving in small steps. You know, there's a lot of different workarounds and I think that'll that'll get solved. But, you know, it was, it was interesting when the first time I did narcosis, um, and, and that's that's there's walking in that one that's being driven by the stick uh, of a controller. But because you're in a diving suit, somehow that created a nice buffer because it sort of became a, a cockpit in of itself. And there there is this weird thing with the vestibular sense that if it can anchor into oh I'm I'm in a stationary object but that object is mo- or or I'm an object that's moving but I'm stationary. That seems to be a major trick, right? Yeah. There, which is just it's just which if you start to like meditate on it for a second feels really weird like why should it be that just creating this little bit of a buffer is enough to get the inner ear to not go weird but i remember i was talking with i can't remember her name right now but she was the the woman who had done the research back in the 90s who was actually quoted in oculus's original um you know best practices guides and she had done all the research on vr and vestibular um, mm-hmm. break she's out in florida and um her just telling me like yeah you know we we actually the problem is we don't know why we get motion sick like that's the first thing it's like we don't even know why that happened in the first place is it a poison response that you know that's hardwired into our brains or is it vice versa well we know the triggers yeah. We, yeah. i mean the, we, know there, the triggers, we, don't know, we don't know the mechanism there's a well there's an evolutionary question i think that's an open question there's yeah. at least five major different theories as to why yeah. we we get motion sick and i did an interview with jason gerald where he kind of lays down all the major different theories that are out there i, I think at this point we kind of know the triggers for, yeah. for motion sickness and there's some work around rounds um but in terms of technology you know kind of the road the things that aren't there yet technologically that i think need to get there before we start to really see this fusion of live theater with uh vr are things like 
facial tracking, mm-hmm. eye tracking. Yeah. So if you're going to give performances, you're going to have to have some ability to capture the emotional expression. Now, at the high end, what I saw at SIGGRAPH was like what a film studio would use or what a, high, a AAA gaming studio would use in their kind of whole system of doing motion capture where they're essentially like the person that is, is there isn't even in a, in a VR uh, HMD, they're just completely capturing their face as if you know they would with a Hollywood actor. They put all the dots in the face and everything. So there's there's basically technological limitations that when you're in VR, it kind of occludes all the major information that you need to do like high fidelity facial tracking essentially. However, there's a lot of people that are looking at that, addressing that, and you know that within the next two to three years that'll be a solved problem. Oh, wow. So once we are able to get the like I've done, I did demos of being able to have eye tracking within a social situation in, in VR and just being able to look at the eyes as a huge dimension of presence. Mm. So I think the, the, the thing you're getting in a live theater experience is that you're seeing that full fidelity of a face and, and a performance. And I think that's it. We're still a number of years away before we can really uh, digitally capture that within VR, both from the facial expression, the eye movements and, you know, all the body movements in a way that, 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 that's just sort of like commodity hardware that anybody could do at at the high end that the technology is already there to put something like that together. It's just sort of the resources to do that. And the idea of doing kind of an ephemeral experience where it's a live theater, uh, in VR. I mean, I'm, I'm waiting to see that. Like I want to see that. And I know it's going to happen, but it's going to take somebody who has both the technological wherewithal as well as the the narrative and story that's going to really work and and just be so compelling i I remember watching uh benedict cumberbatch um in one of those national theater of of london uh from the barbican uh editions of hamlet and being in a movie theater and watching it and just thinking this would be and someone's sitting there and they're they're doing a television broadcast so they're choosing cuts and choosing edits and just getting really excited about the idea that maybe in five years, you know, instead of a director deciding where I'm looking, I'm just there on stage via the magic of a light field capture or something because the potted plants on stage aren't actually potted plants. They're, they're capture devices. And instead of, instead of being forced to watch a British actor, uh, you know, have a lot of nasal drainage while they're crying, uh, I could either walk away from that or I could get up really close and see just how involved in the scene they were. Um, and, and just wanting that, like viscerally knowing that we're, we're this close to the idea of, oh, Cumberbatch is playing... Yeah, you can go. You can go see it. You can go have that experience, and it'll it'll feel like you're there in the Barbican, or it'll feel like you're wandering the stage. Yeah, and it, it, as you're saying that, it reminds me of this interview that I did with Devin Dolan in episode 292 of the Voices of VR podcast. How where do you do that? How do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, have, I have like 94, and I can't do that. <laughs> there's a certain number of episodes that I know they're really big key insights. And, okay. Okay. And. In this podcast episode, he essentially talks about the the kind of a, a quadrant system of either you are a ghost or a character and you either have agency or you don't have agency, mm. right? And so if you look at uh, interactive storytelling, you, let's just look at the the kind of the, the upper left of, you know, you're, you're a ghost and you have no agency. That's essentially like any film. Like you, you, you're not a character... 
and you can't have any impact. Now, if you are a character and you have no agency, that might be like you're a paralyzed person. They're addressing you as a character, but you can't actually say or do anything. There's so, a lot of VR experiences, VR films, where that's the exact scenario. I love the right. horror stuff. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and so then uh, you get into you being a ghost uh, and having agency, but the agency would usually be around your local agency. So that would be like you're thrown into a world and you can move around. Sleep no more. Sleep no more. Everyone's got a mask and, and we become, I often refer to sleep no more as like we're the ghosts that are haunting the McKittrick. Right. You're a ghost and you don't actually have any real agency, but you have the agency to be able to move around, which mm-hmm. is a local agency. So then the final dimension of interactive story is that you're a character and you have agency. So you're actually included within the narrative in some way. You can participate in it. You're addressed as a character and you can participate and you can have decisions that you're making and potentially have those decisions like impact the outcome. That would be like Westworld where you're actually in the world and making decisions and there's a narrative there, but you can make choices that may change the narrative. Or it could be Facade, which is probably one of the only video games that has like true local and global agency to the point where you can do kind of natural language input and say mm. just about anything at any moment and it's doing a certain amount of like emotional intense and and kind of uh you know i, I don't know if you've talked about facade or heard no, about it. Fa- no. so facade was in 2004 it was a key it's done by andrew stern and okay. and uh, michael mateus i talked to andrew stern in episode 293 right after devin dolan so it was back to back um, but the whole idea of this experience is that you go into this like dinner party of a husband and a wife and they're fighting. They're about to break up essentially. Mm. And you have the ability to type in anything you want. So it has like some AI in the back end to be able to detect the intent of are you paying attention? Are you addressing this character, the husband or the wife? Are you showing like are you showing affinity for one or the other? If you're showing affinity for one, that means that you're showing you know not affinity for the other. And so it's like this game where you're paying attention to one or the other and kind of listening to them fight with each other, and you're kind of the mediator. And there's one of five outcomes of like either you help them solve their issue, they kick you out for you being rude, uh, one of them leaves, the other one leaves, or you just take the safe route of being so neutral that nothing changes and nothing happens and you get kicked out, but nothing really actually changes. Mm. But on the back end, they have a drama manager and that drama manager has story beats. And so there's different phases of this interactive experience that are happening such that you're making uh, small decisions that maybe there's a randomness to each of those but you know depending on those uh, different kind of goalposts that you go through those mile markers you're, you're sort of going into one of the five different branches depending on where you're at so it's a little bit like you can think of an authored script as a completely linear like from start to finish it's just a straight line this is a little bit like there's little branches where you're making decisions like five major authored branches but so much like interactivity like at any moment you could be thrown into like you could screw it up and get kicked out because you were Mm. just too rude or you know you just um but you give that element of like at any moment you don't necessarily know which any of those small decisions are going to be a major decision and you have to try to navigate that story. So that's a that's a, an example of a story that's moving more towards that emergent side, which is like a real listening, 
within the experience, but a real also participation of high agency where you're a character in the story, you're interacting and participating, and you have the ability to kind of change the outcome. So that to me, I think, is where the real gold of the future of both live theater as well as um you know these these virtual reality experiences and storytelling where you're able to actually either communicate with ai and non-player characters or it's going to be um you know these training video these training vr experiences where they're called wizard of oz experiences within the training and so one example by charles charlie hughes he would have like um, I think it's called like Teach Live. And mm-hmm. there's like a temperament theory for um, children where they have one of four temperaments and um, they're either kind of like active or passive, aggressive or, you know, dominant or, or passive. And then, you know, kind of introverted, extroverted. I'm a, yeah. They sort of have a, a certain theory that they teach. And you go into this experience as a teacher and you're talking to a screen, but uh, the screen is these virtual characters. And on the other side, they're they're puppeteered by an improv actor who is embodying each of the five different characters but Mm. also able to kind of uh control their movements by pushing different buttons so there's an interactor on the on the back end who's kind of like controlling like a wizard of oz the scene so you have one person kind of acting out but kind of putting people through a certain you know uh regimented training regimen and so they do that with uh, teaching teachers how to work with kids. They do that with nurses, how to stop the line when they're interacting with doctors and being able to like basically say, wait, you're putting this patient in danger. Stop what you're doing. Um, so they have these scenarios working with these virtual avatars, these virtual humans, uh, but it's done in a way that is kind of um, constrained. Uh, in, and if you look, go back to the, the four different dimensions, this is much more on the, you know, kind of, you're a character, but you you have no real like global agency. You have local. I mean, right. you're you're able to control it, but it's really kind of authored. Yeah. But it's meant to give you a training experience in that right. way. So I kind of see like there's a lot of uh, things that are already happening, but they haven't been put into the entertainment world. We don't have a Wizard of Oz like live theater experience where you have like there's like maybe five characters in a room, but they're all puppeteered by, by one, one person. person. The closest the closest we get is like at Disneyland. You'll have like you know, crush, and you're you're interacting with one character being puppeteered behind the scenes, or there's the very creepy Mr. Potato Head in front of one of the Toy Story rides, who is usually on a loop, but occasionally is being piloted by someone, which can be horrifying. Uh, when he goes from I, the first time it's, I saw it, it terrified me because he went from going through a spiel to there was a little girl in front of him that looked like she might be lost, and so he said, "Hey, little girl!" And this giant Mr. Potato Head started talking to like a six-year-old, and I kind of broke my brain a little bit. But I know that the Disney Imagineers have been working with the idea of, "Oh, can they get an AI running scenarios to the parks where they're actually activating?" You know, they're they're activating different members of the cast to you know let them have sort of LARP-like experiences going through the parks, and I'm sure they're they're dreaming of the day when they can just have things popping around with the audio animatronic characters in Star Wars Land to to have this sort of thing happening and be driven by AI. They want Westworld. Yeah, they want Westworld. Yeah, yeah. and, and the- they just put a patent out for a soft-bodied animatronic character that can move like a cartoon character that happened about a week ago oh yeah yeah. well westworld is going to happen but it's not going to be in physical reality i think it's going to be in vr first because 
it, it's a lot safer. <laughs> it's a lot safer, and it just it's going to be not as feasible to to build everything. It's going to be NVR. We're going to have that, and I think that we are going to have both like AI characters and and maybe live theater actors, and maybe you won't really know who's who, and maybe at any given moment it may switch around. And so, yeah. um, but I think that the the thing that I uh, thought was really fascinating the interview that I did with Andrew Stern in that episode 293 was that he was talking about how like AI actually is pretty dumb and and being able to really kind of accurately respond to what they were doing back in 2004 especially but even now to a certain extent today but in the constraints of a, a of a narrative you were able to construct a, a kind of a narrative arc and a great dramatic tension within that such that you're able to have these certain interactions where you just get so caught up in the story that you kind of forget how dumb the yeah. AI might be. Yeah. So you're able to actually do way more than just pure AI. Like we don't have AI that can pass a Turing test right now where you you absolutely know, but you can put it within the constraints of a, nor- a narrative and a story and it'll be sort of immersive and believable. It's kind of like you know, there's there's a point where for I find for both immersive theater and in VR where the suspension of disbelief works sort of as a by way of invitation and the mind really wants to jump in and play. And even in the early days of putting on like the first, you know, the DK one of Oculus and kind of dealing with the screen door effect and all the things that were technologically wrong with it. Finding myself sitting in a Starfighter, you know, cockpit was completely compelling, and I just started to flood in and fill in the details. And when I'm in an immersive theater piece, I will often find myself flooding in and, and filling in the details emotionally uh, as I'm going through the, the embodiment. You know, what, what you're given to pay attention to becomes a center of your focus, and the other stuff goes into a soft focus and kind of fades into the background. But I've also been talking with creators and and they will set up sequences and then like observe people going through them again and again there's this piece here in LA called and the drum and it was centered around a dinner party and there were a few things that were bound to happen in the dinner party a few questions that got asked a couple of pieces of poetry that were delivered and there were of course the delivery of certain parts of the dinner but the gals told me that pretty much you know there, there was variation in terms of content but the rhythm of every dinner party pretty much went the same. The same beats were hit by the audience. And I started to see that it was a lot about the conditions you place. And I started to think about the way directors, you know, the, 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 the magic of theater is that a director will, if they set up the right conditions for the actors, the actors will then do what it is the director wants and they'll be able to repeat that over and over again. But they also bring themselves to it and they will then step beyond just what the director wanted and add that extra dimension if the conditions are proper. Yeah. And I see some of the same stuff happening in, in these VR kind of sandboxes or these experiences that, you know, it teaches you how to do it and then it's what you're bringing to the, the experience that you're given that then just makes it all that much more. Yeah, and the, the thing that this uh, reminds me of is uh, Andrew Stern and Michael Mateus, uh, they did Facade in 2004. And if you go to their website, they have a PDF called Behind the Facade, Mm. where they tell you how they architected this narrative. And the thing that's fascinating about this PDF that you can buy from them for like $5 um, is that, you know, when you think of of a script, you think of it as this, you know, linear thing from 
from start to finish as traditional media. But this is much more like a computer program with different conditions that are met. And then once those conditions are met, then it sort of like moves into these different branches. And so um, they call it a drama manager where you have this drama manager based upon what sort of input you're getting from the audience. Then that sort of sets it on a certain trajectory. I'm not sure if the immersive theater you know crowd has been able to have this type of emergent narrative where they're able to kind of adapt to certain situations and then kind of take it onto different trajectories uh, which is essentially kind of uh, different branches where the individual local agency of the participants kind of kicks it into one of five major outcomes let's just say uh, where there's a, a level of global agency and emergence that it feels much more like a conversation where uh, at the end of it, you feel like, hey, what my participation kind of helped lead it into this. I think a lot of interactive narratives, they maybe give you a lot of leeway in the middle, but then at the end, they sort of kind of wrap it up and yeah. have a singular kind of, you know, end point that Pro- production, most of Yeah, production budget often limits, limits yeah. that. And then sometimes it winds up being that the emphasis becomes on the illusion of choice. Right. You know, but there's, but I do think that for a lot of people, they do dream of that idea of the branching path narrative and and there's there's this production constraints whether it's like there's just not enough physical space or you know how i I bet you could get one that's relatively short that had that because at a certain point an actor can only get so many lines in their head unless you do the brando thing and someone's feeding your lines as you're going uh, or keeping you on track somehow, but well, the, the potential is here. Well, and I, I definitely see that potential. And I had a an amazing kind of discussion slash debate with uh, three of the co-founders of Oculus Story Studio, mm. and this was at um, one of their uh, Oculus Connect conferences. And it was episode four seventy seven. It's because I I know that because I I kind of aggregated my top fifty interviews that I did about sort of interactive storytelling in this post. Mm. But in this specific interview that I did with three of these co-founders of Oculus Story Studio... Was Sashka one of them? Sashka was yeah, one yeah, of them, yeah. Sashka Khan. And basically he was saying, if you have more than one ending, then you don't know what you're trying to say mm. in, a, in the story. Yeah. So from a purely authored perspective, there's a certain you know kind of philosophy that you, know, you have something very specific to say yeah. and that you follow that fixed path. But I would push back and say that, well... Depending on who is receiving that story, they may need like different information based upon the conversation that happens. It'd be kind of like you go into a counseling session and be like, there's only one outcome. Well, no, you actually have to listen to where someone's at and what they're personally experiencing and maybe the medicine they need is adapted based upon what they're providing. And yeah. so that's a little bit a different philosophy. There's this tension between the objective and the subjective. And there's like, I I always think of, uh, I always go back to the Mass Effect trilogy and the way it ended with a sacrifice and how much pushback there was from gamers on that because they really thought that they were going to somehow, there had to, they demanded, there had to be at least one ending where you survived and saved the galaxy and that was it. And, And I read that narrative of that whole series as, oh, this is a heroic sacrifice narrative and this entire last chapter is about making peace with the fact that we all die, that we're not going to be immortal, that even Ray Kurzweil is going to co- you know, knock over before he can upload his brain, right? Like like the, odd, the, the clock is ticking, Ray. The clock is ticking. Sorry to make you nervous. <laughs> tick, 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 tick. But um, 
but, but and that's one of the things that to go into my Campbellian roots, right? Like that's one of the things story is supposed to do is orient yourself to the necessities of the flesh. Yeah. Right, like this, we make up stories to explain away the weird things our bodies do, and and that the and that the planet does. Um, but there is definitely something to to the subjective experience needs to be radically different based on the kind of person that 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 the 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 participant, the the listener, the audience member is, because people take totally different things out of even the simplest film, like. I watched Rogue One, the Darth Vader scene at the end. I have no great love of it because I'm, I'm a strict purist about certain things and I don't necessarily love fan service. Other people lose their minds because that's all all they want to see is, is Darth Vader kicking butt. Both of us, the person I'm thinking of and myself, we are insane Star Wars fans, like, like died in the wool. But we, our own lives have led us into appreciating different things about the, the narrative experience. And as much as I, I, I definitely can get where Sashka is coming from, and I think Sashka really, uh, really gets a lot of the immersive stuff pretty, pretty deeply, uh, has some great ways of, of approaching story. Um, there's the, it's it's just as valid, I think, to have you know, there's there's different outcomes that that you know maybe maybe the the non-player characters maybe the other the other you know characters in the story their lives might arc a certain way but your choices do do affect where you go in life and that's a valid way of 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 experiencing story it's harder it's trickier yeah and i think that's what eric darnell was saying and basically saying whenever you're introducing agency into the process of storytelling you kind of have this trade-off between at how much can you exert your will at any given moment versus how much are you able to listen, receive to the narrative that's coming at you. And there's always kind of been this tension of interactive narrative where sometimes you feel like the narrative is just kind of being shoved down your throat and you don't, and you don't have any ability to railroad it. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that's the happens in role playing tabletop role playing games all the time. And like, that's the number one complaint of gamers. Like, ah, the GM just railroaded us. Like we weren't, we, we might as well not have been there. Right. Yeah. So, and I think that's, that's the, what I'm seeing in, in terms of the, the VR community, um, as well as sort of doing some of the AI, uh, interviews. Cause I feel like AI, what's happening in like some of the experimental AI is like a, a number of years ahead of what is happening with AI and VR. There's sort of a lag. Mm. So, and I think the sort of integration of those two is going to take a little bit of, of time to really, you know, there's a lot of services from Microsoft cognitive services, IBM and Google, you know, and you know, there's more and more, maybe even Amazon will have opportunities to do uh, natural language processing and be able to, to do these cloud services. So I've already started to see some of these services being integrated into these VR experiences. Um, and I think that um, there's going to be a lot that code can do to constrain this, these drama managers mm. and to be able to handle a wide range of input and account for that. And that I think the actors and and story creators are going to have a lot to learn from some of these kind of interactive narratives that are going to come out into the VR space and then start to model what the computer code has been doing but to have a direct experience of that metaphor of that story because i feel like it's going to be kind of new story story forms that we don't really have much of a reference frame maybe like facade and maybe like watching the narrative of westworld is starting to get that but we don't have a direct experience of westworld yet but i think that 
Westworld in a lot of ways is where all of this is is kind of heading and and allowing people to have a narrative that's unfolding but if they want to completely derail it and take it in their own direction then you know they can do that they can kill everybody in the scene for example in Westworld yeah if people are there and they just want to completely massacre everyone well that kind of ends the authored experience of the narrative that's unfolding for that day but they were able to basically completely express their agency. And I think that that is actually where um, I've seen some stuff from the, the Rick and Morty experience that's going to be coming out from mm. Alchemy Labs. And so Alchemy is sort of like the essence of fire, uh, high agency, making everything that you can touch and interact with in a VR experience respond. And that's the level of plausibility so that if you pick up a cup and it doesn't react in the way that you expect – then you've suddenly broke broken presence. Mm. And so if in your you're in a narrative and you have, you know, Rick talking to you about uh, something within this uh, Rick and Morty experience and you pick up a shoe and you throw it at his face, he's going to respond to you like saying, oh, that was really rude. But then he may kind of slip back into the narrative. But if you do that and they completely ignore you, then suddenly the plausibility is broken. Oh, yeah. And for me, it was like running around like Half-Life 2 or something like that and just like running around the room like a madman and the character is still just talking at right. the wall. And it's just like, oh, eh, this is... And, and for so many people, it's like, oh, well, I don't want to have to be stuck listening to the characters. Like, they just want to get past the cutscene. And I was like... But but it, it is, it's so broke it for me. Like, having that freedom of movement when I'm supposed to be talking to someone didn't enhance it for me. Like, it was too much fire. I right. need I needed I need a little less fire so I could so I could get down in the emotions a little bit more. Yeah, and and just a point on that, Rob Morgan from the Assembly when I interviewed him back in like 2015 at GDC, he was basically talking about how uh, that may be okay in a 2D screen where you kind of have this objectification and, and mm. you may break presence in a certain way, but you still kind of are pretty forgiving, but yet if someone does that to you in VR, then that completely breaks presence. So there's a, a level of the uncanny valley, um, which Massive. I think is which is important to bring up here in the context of of the plausibility when it comes to social interactions. And so if you're interacting with an AI NPC and they're not like reacting with the body language, and if you start to turn away and they still talk, you know that that type of behavior is not what real humans do. And whenever you see that. That's a presence breaker. And so um, there's so much higher levels of sensitivities to plausibility when you're interacting in social situations because we've been just trained all of our lives to know all the little subtle cues that we don't even necessarily are able to articulate, but we know it when it's not there. And that's why it's this kind of nebulous, uncanny valley. That's one of the things that was interesting to me about where all this is going from a design standpoint is because you have to, people have to bring more and more of these unconscious loops that are happening in our perception into the way they're thinking about providing a a narrative experience or, or a game experience. Uh, and if you ignore it, you you break you break presence. And this is also very much true in in theater. Like when when I'm and again, there's a spectrum here. Like I might go to a theater piece, and I, I I'll, there'll be what I call the veil, sort of like the, the actors maybe a few feet away from me, but they're they're not really you know we're not on the same emotional plane. You know, they're looking right past me, and. This, I've, I've gotten to the point where I accept this as a kind of immersive in what I call the big eye. Now I'm starting, I'm starting to call the big eye. There's, there's, this, there's this really big tent 
where if you're playing with embodiment, if you're playing with traversal, all these sort of things. But if you're going deep, if you're getting deeply immersive, that's where all of this sort of design language starts to get involved and where you have to start taking into account oh yeah it's it's about this this connection between one pair of eyes and another pair of eyes or how our bodies are in relation to each other like someone watching us talk can learn so we'll probably know more about what we think about each other because we've only been known each other about an hour and 30 minutes here than we probably do because they can see what we're doing and we're very much in an airspace of like, we're, we're really in, in brain <laughs> mode. But all this stuff is firing off that we're right. unaware of yeah. mentally. Yeah, and I, and I think that's, you know, to me, I've, I, I haven't had a chance to talk to a lot. It may be kind of the first real uh, deep dive into someone who's been studying a lot of the immersive theater and thinking about it deeply. And, you know, I've, I saw Sleep No More. Um, I've been wanting to talk to Punch Drunk. And I saw Dandy Punk this year at, Ooh, at, at, jealous. at, at, yeah. at Sundance. They did an amazing immersive theater performance there. I have a br- very brief interview with Dandy Punk that I'll be putting out here at some point. But... You know they're they're doing a lot of things with projection mapping and you know really phys- physical based performances, but in a space that um, they, they kind of call themselves the alchemy of light. So they're doing things where they're kind of pretending like they're sh- kind of shooting magical light out of their hand, and because it's projection mapped on the wall and they're interacting with it, it's sort of a it's sort of a fake agency where it looks like they're actually participating in it but it's all obviously pre-rendered and they're yeah. just being at the right place at the right time and having their hands at a specific point but it sort of puts you into this hypnotic state of just wanting to believe that what they're doing that they're really just magicians and that they're just you know manipulating light in this way and it's just like completely magic and so his stuff is even amazing just to watch on instagram yeah it's like he's got instas and you're just like what's going on and and uh, it is a dream for me to see that live and, and i'm pretty sure he wants to bring it here to Los Angeles. I know that for a fact. Yeah. And uh, just beat down the door when it happens. Yeah, that type of thing uh, is, to me, what I see is kind of the first line of coming from more of the live theater side and but integrating more of these immersive principles of, you know, projection mapped and, you know, kind of this augmented reality. Uh, but it actually, to me, it was just, it was amazing. And, and I, I hope to see much more of those those fusions and and like i said i think there's so much to to learn from these these uh two communities and that um yeah to me it's it's it comes down to cultivating a sense of presence and plausibility yeah and i think that you know as we're going through this conversation there's so much where you know like there's to me when i talked to mel slater and he's really in the earth element embodiment and I have an interview that'll be coming up with him where I ask him, well, how does emotional present kind of fit into your model? And he Mm. was like, it doesn't really, I'm really just thinking about the body. Mm. So when I think about a theory of presence, it's like, well, I'm just going to create the elemental theory of presence that will kind of include perhaps dimensions of what Mel Slater is saying about embodiment and embodied presence. But I'm kind of in some ways philosophically putting the emotional presence on the same footing as embodied presence active presence and social and mental presence so you basically from my perspective you have these four major 
kind of key building blocks to an immersive experience and that you can really kind of dial one down and dial one up you know if you want to like give people a little bit less agency but amp that's going to amplify the empathy in different ways or have it more social so i think that kind of playing with these different levels of presence and you know the big question is from an experiential design perspective is how do you holistically create an experience that encompasses all of these different dimensions of presence because if you go back to the ancients each of the four elements are kind of like always happening all the time and then they're always kind of changing from one to the other so it's not about like reductionistically isolating one they're all happening yeah. like no matter what you do so they're yes. all there you just have to figure out how to kind of balance it and make it feel real and plausible that along with the water sound that's come back again is a fantastic point for us to end on. So, Kent Bai, thank you. I think you've given the immersive designers who who listen to the show a lot to think about, and uh, I'm, I'm so grateful you took the time out here in your short time in Los Angeles to, to spend all this time with us. Yeah, awesome. It was a great pleasure, and uh, yeah, I hope to get more engaged with this community and you know if people want to learn more about what i'm doing i'm on voices of vr.com and soon voices of ai and i'm in the process of just kind of writing a book about the ultimate potential of vr trying to synthesize kind of a like a roadmap to be able to look at what's happening in the vr community kind of you know sift through these 500 plus episodes but uh it was a great uh, interesting, vital discussion that I think that these two communities are going to continue to be emerge, uh, kind of converging in different ways, and that I think there's a lot to learn from each other. So I hope to kind of open up more of a dialogue and pulling in these people from immersive theater into the voices of VR to kind of see some of these lessons. But uh, that'd be wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And and vice versa. I'm trying to get more of the VR kids to kind of come over to our side and 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 talk because it, it can be it can be strange sometimes because. They, everyone, I think, thinks the languages are different, but when we talk about presence and we talk about agency, like that, we talk about that in the immersive theater world as well, because those are the embo- you know, the embodiment's easy. It's like, oh, you're physically there, great, but the emotional presence and all the other elements, those are the things that that they have to work on. Those are the challenges. So it's like all these all these different designers coming in from all these angles. And, and I love what you've laid out here because I think it gives us all a common tongue to use. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you. Once again, want to thank our guest, Kent Bai, for being on the show today. You can find Kent on Twitter at Kent Bai. K-E-N-T-B-Y-E. You can also find him at VoicesOfVR.com. That's the website for the podcast. There is a tag there at the top of that website. Top 10 Voices of VR episodes to get started in VR. I suggest you check those out. I suggest you follow the show. Uh, and then we can we come back together and we can we can talk about it right here, right here on this show. We can talk about what what, what we've learned together. The music for this is by Chris Porter. Uh, I'm going to hold just a second before I jump totally into the credits, because hopefully you're still hanging around. Hi there. Um, I'm pretending there's another camera here. I I wish (laughs) another camera. Yes, I just admitted it. I tend to look forward and imagine a camera. (laughs) I imagine that I'm talking to you through a camera, 
when I'm actually talking to you through a microphone. So you can be embarrassed for me. And yes, I might have done this my entire life, even though I wasn't talking to people, just because that's the kind of weirdo I am. But when I want to change gears, I need to go to camera two. And so I'm in camera two right now, and you can even hear it in my voice that I'm in camera two. We're getting close to episode 100. We're getting close to episode 100 because of you. Yes, you. If you're listening right now, I do mean you. You made this possible. It's all your fault. Um, things are going to change. There's a storm coming, Mr. Wayne. Things are going to change on this here podcast. As far as I'm concerned, they're going to change for the better. Because the kind of work that's going on right now is inspiring me. And when I get inspired, I work harder. And I work harder, hopefully, for your benefit. I've been making radio since I was a teenager. I'm not a teenager anymore. I've done it professionally that entire time. I haven't been doing the professional radio. uh, I haven't produced anything um, for about a year now. And I'm starting to get a little itchy. I want to break the old skills out. I'm not making any promises. I'm not saying it's all the time. But I want you to know the format's going to change after episode 100. But before that, for episode 100, I want your memories. I want to steal them out of your mind like I was a, a thief of dreams. Now, next week, I'm going to look into setting up like a simple voicemail thing for you because there's Google Voice and whatnot. And, you know, that's a thing. But right now, what you can do is you can go and take your smartphone and find your voice memo app, whatever type of voice memo app you you use, and you can record a message for the 100th episode. I want your favorite immersive memory. Keep it, you know, 30 seconds or so. I'm going to pick a few. I might roll these out afterwards if we get a bunch. I want to hear from everybody. I really do. I know how many people listen to the show. I have the download numbers. This is not hard for me to figure out. Um, But I want to know who you are. I really, really, really do. This is my favorite thing every week is knowing that you're listening to this show. I desperately want to hear from you. I want to hear what you think of the show. I want to hear what you're getting out of it. I want to hear what you discovered. It doesn't have to be because you were listening to the show. It doesn't have to be because you read the newsletter. I, I don't want you to, um, I'm not looking for praise here. I'm never comfortable with that. It's about the work. And I want to hear that you're finding the work. I want to know you're out there. I want to hear your voice. So record that voice memo and send it to me, Noah. Noah at nopersinium.com. You know how to spell it. Not everyone does, but you know, look at the podcast thing. There it is. I don't know how to spell it sometimes. I sent a really important email this week that spelled it wrong. I mean, come on, I butcher names. What are we gonna say? All right, so how do you find us? Well, I gave you the email a second ago. Nopersinium.com has links to everything we do at Nopersinium on Twitter. Everything immersive is the group on Facebook. No Persinium is the page on Facebook. I'm at Noah, Nel- Noah J. Nelson. I nearly forgot my J. Can't forget my J. What does that mean? That used that means something? Noah J. Nelson on Twitter. 
Um, and Noah at nopersinium.com. Don't even worry about the old Outlook one. That's that's a thing of the past. It still works, but it's a thing of the past. Patreon.com slash nopersinium if you want to back the show, particularly if you want not these dreams of audio production. I got some real schemes there. So uh, throw some money in the kitty and uh, come be surprised. Medium.com slash no dash proscenium is where we put up all the reviews and the essays. You can also find that through no proscenium.com. Folks, that was the show. Um, episode 100 is coming. Tell me your dreams. Tell me your hopes. Tell me your visions. Get yourself ready. Fringe is coming to Los Angeles. There is a special edition of the newsletter coming. If you're listening this late, you deserve to know that. Uh, and it is coming this following week because things are crazy and we got to be ready for them because fringe tickets go on sale May 1st. And I want you to be prepared because Los Angeles has not seen this volume of work ever. And San Francisco's popping off and New York is holding it down and being New York and Orlando's getting ready to bubble up their fringe and Chicago and St. Paul and Portland and Seattle. This whole country is coming alive and the VR thing is popping off and they're talking to the theater folks and ah, I can barely keep up with it. I can't keep up with it. I need some help ringing on some help. It's a good time. It's a good time to be a fan of immersive and it's possible now to be a fan of immersive. So next week on the show, Julianne just of the speakeasy society. Always fun to hang out. It's kind of an after dark episode. It gets a little silly, gets a lot of fun until then I'll see you at the show. <laughs>